an item for preachers called It's a Bad Day When. It's a bad day when, at the wedding, you call the groom by the bride's former boyfriend's name. And it's a bad day when the church votes to change your day off to Sunday. Hmm. It's a bad day when you finally remember the name of that person you promised to visit in the hospital while reading the obituaries. It's a bad day when the youth minister urgently asks you about the church's liability insurance. And it's a bad day when the couple you married a year ago calls to ask for a warranty. I had a friend of mine uh, doing a wedding, and I've messed up some words before, but never quite this bad. When it comes to till death do us part instead of a P and an F. <laughs> till death do us, yeah, you get it. Another friend was doing a graveside funeral, and it was muddy, and he actually slipped and fell into the hole. That's a bad day. We've all blown it. We've all messed up. Uh, but some mess-ups are more serious than others. Maybe you blew it as a teenager, and you're still paying for it. Maybe you blew it as a parent, and it's caused heartache. Maybe you messed up at work and did some permanent damage to your career. Maybe you messed up a relationship. You know, some mess-ups do a lot of damage. Well, Isaiah 40 is for we who have blown it sometime or other. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah speak to God's people before their destruction, warning them over and over that if they persist in the direction they're going, there's going to be some consequences. The first 39 chapters show God's people blowing it. And God's saying, you are messing up. Chapter 40 then, and the last 27 chapters mark a dramatic change, whereas Isaiah now speaks to Israel about 80 to 100 years down the road. Israel is now in exile, and they've been deported to Babylon, and they're paying the price for messing up. As Isaiah speaks to Israel in this last half of the book, he speaks to an Israel that has seen their homeland overrun, they've lost everything, they're captives in a foreign land, and Psalm 137 says, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. It's a time of grief and loss. So Isaiah 40 is a message for those living in exile, those who've blown it and maybe sensed the abandonment of God. Now the exile... For Israel had significant physical and socioeconomic and a psychological impact. Families were separated, loved ones were lost, Palestine was impoverished and underoccupied, most of the people were taken off to Babylon. But besides the physical and the psychological impact, the exile raised serious theological questions like the destruction of the temple. What's that mean? This was Yahweh's dwelling place on earth, the tangible symbol of God's presence and a reminder of His unfailing promises it's up in flames. And its destruction called God himself into question. Is God defeated? Are the Babylonian gods greater than our God? And then the end of the Davidic dynasty also happened. Had not God promised an eternal dynasty to David? But now that ends. Did God lie? How can this be? And then expulsion from the land created a problem. The promised land was one of the key promises to the patriarchs that the land would be an eternal inheritance. Did God not keep His promises? Was He too weak? Was He unfaithful? Doesn't He care anymore? A lot of theological issues. Psalm 137.4 says, How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? How can we worship this God who's either too weak or he doesn't care. Their whole worldview was being challenged. And I suspect the same happens to us, maybe not to the same extent, but when we screw up and then we have to pay the price, we wonder if God has abandoned us and is he punishing us and have I blown out so bad that even God can't fix it? There's two fundamental questions that surface when we, we blow it. Number one, does God care? 
Have I messed things up so much that he's turned his back? These people in exile wonder, does this mean God is no longer with us? God had no obligation to deliver them. God could have abandoned Israel for good, and he would have been right in doing. And when we mess up things, God has no obligations to deliver us. But here's what he says in Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for. And from now on in Isaiah, comfort is the tone. Up until now, threat, warning, and judgment was the tone. They would not listen. They continued in their stupid ways, and God was warning them over and over, and they were just bent on screwing things up. But now now that they're being thoroughly punished in exile, comfort is the tone. Israel has lost everything. They're paying the price. And this is an affirmation in Isaiah 40 and the following chapters. God does care. He's not done with you yet. And notice he says, my people and your God, relational pronouns. You are still my people. I am still your God. God has not abandoned you even after you've blown it. Second question when we blow it, can God deliver? Can he do anything about this mess I've made? That's great that he cares, but can he change my circumstances? A very popular book about death and dying came out, said God cares. Yep, he loves you, but he can't do anything about it. He's a nice God, but he's a weak God. So what exile are you in? Have you blown it? Um, You know, as a preacher, I get discouraged and down and depressed, and it's hard, and I feel inadequate times, and they feel like I'm in exile. And I know some of you think I only work two hours a week, and it's an easy job, cushy and all that. That is just not true. You know, I drive by the funeral home, and I think of how easy it would be at a funeral director. And I mean, a customer in the funeral home just doesn't talk back. I think that would be great. Or I would love, you know, a farmer. I think about farmers. They don't have to worry about hardly anything. They just plant, harvest, and go to Florida. I mean, what a life that is. They don't have the hardships I have. School teachers, easy hours, great kids to work with, supportive parents, summer off, and they go to any ball game they want to. They have a good life. And insurance salesmen, I won't even comment on that easy street. I mean, do any of you think the same way I do about other professions? It just looks greener over there. And I'm being facetious, of course, but all of us have some feelings of exile. Feelings that this is hard or I'm blowing, maybe marital exile. You're just trapped. Or emotional exile. Maybe an addiction or a sin has a grip on you. Can God deliver? Is God able? Can He change things? And the bulk of the rest of Isaiah 40 is just an affirmation of who this God is. Verses 12 through 31 is just a series of questions about God, 22 questions in 20 verses, a reminder of who God is. They're rhetorical questions, and when we've blown it, that's what we need. We need a reminder of who our God is. Verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance. Isaiah begins with God's creation. Just look at this creation. Look at the oceans, the waters, and look at the mountains, and look at the earth and the universe that he holds in his hands. Can anyone measure it? No human can measure him. We cannot imagine what he holds in the palm of his hand. Now, their view of creation was a little different than our view of creation today. Uh, Our sun, for instance... I don't think they knew this, but our sun is one star among billions, and it's an average star... It is a raging ball of fire that converts mass into energy at the rate equivalent of 92 billion nuclear bombs exploding every second. 
92 billion. If you took a pinhead and heated that head to the temperature of the core of the sun, it would kill every person within a thousand miles, a pinhead. Do we grasp the power in the hand of God? And that's an average star, billions of them. Our universe is so large, you know we measure it in light years, 186,000 miles per second. The farthest we can see with today's telescopes are 10 to 15 billion light years. Can, can you fathom that? And there's 30 billion planets. All this in the hand of God. Who can measure his, this universe? Who can measure this God? And Isaiah said, you know, I know you have problems, and I know you have worries, and you're in exile, and, and you've blown it, but let me remind you who your God is. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as a counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Answer to those questions, no one. No one has instructed God. No one tells God what to do. Essentially, he's reminding us no mind can comprehend his ways. You can no more measure the mind of God than you can measure his universe. If I cannot fathom the creation, I certainly cannot fathom the creator. No one can give him advice and say that he should have done this or that. It'd be like your dog telling you how to drive the car. It's just silly. See, Israel didn't understand why this exile happened. And some were questioning God's power, some were questioning God's love, but some questioned his wisdom. Does this God know what he's doing? And sometimes we have the same question. We're going through exile. What the heck are you doing? And there are times God is trying to help us and we interpret it as hurting us. Best, the best thing for Israel was captivity. This is the only thing that kept them from extinction. The only thing that kept them losing their religion was going in exile. The exile was their salvation. They thought it was their destruction. They didn't understand what God was doing. His plan and His mind is so far above ours, no mind can comprehend His ways. Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. In the divine plan of God, Babylon is a speck. The islands are fine dust, almost invisible. The empires and powers of this world are nothing before him. No nation is above him. The temptation for God's people is to go to two extremes when it comes to politics and the powers of this world. One is to place too much reliance on the world powers. And Isaiah deals with this, this in the first 39 chapters. Woe to you who go to Egypt for help. Woe to you who look to the Assyrians for help. Woe to you who look to the Republicans for the solution. Yo, woe to you who look to the Democrats for the solution. Too much reliance on the world powers. The other extreme is being too greatly in fear of the world powers and what they can do. Babylon was powerful. How could God's people ever get out of this mess? And we lose our sense of proportion. We forget that the newspaper headlines are footnotes to Scripture. No nation is above Him. These big, hairy, scary forces in your life are a drop in the bucket. Compared with our God, the big, bad Babylonians in His divine plan were nothing. No nation's above Him. Lebanon, in verse 16, is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Altar fires, burnt offerings, of course, were part of the sacrificial system in Israel. And he's saying, you can get the best, most expensive wood from Lebanon. You can get the finest animals, but they're not good enough for God. No sacrifice is worthy of Him. We can put together the perfect service and honor Him with all our heart and give 100% of our money and our time and even die for Him. It's not worthy. It's only by grace that he accepts our worship. You do not deserve to be here today. 
I do not deserve to be. We do not deserve to serve Him. It's only because He invites us and lets us. And when we worship and serve this God, it's not like we're doing Him a favor. A couple was traveling around the world and they were in Korea and they saw a field by the side of the road and they stopped. There's a boy pulling an old crude plow and there was an old man who was at the handles directing it through the rice paddy. And the husband was amused seeing this boy dragging this plow with the old man behind him. And the tour guide, uh, he said to the tour guide, I suppose they're poor, obviously. And the tour guide said, yes, they are. And when the church was built a year ago, they were eager to give something to it, but they had no money. So they sold the only ox they had and gave their money to the church. And so this spring, they're pulling the plow by themselves. It'd be like a farmer giving his only tractor. And the wife said, well, that was a real sacrifice. And the missionary said, they didn't call it that. They thought it was fortunate they had an ox to sell. And we struggled to get up on Sunday morning. Too cold today. Nothing we do is sacrifice. Nothing is worthy of Him. Now, He accepts it and blesses it, but we're not doing Him any favors in our service to Him. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken Him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Now, during the exile, they would see great processions honoring the Babylonian gods and giving these gods the credit for enabling Babylon to conquer the world. The mindset of the ancient world was the God who wins is the God who is superior. And it raised theological questions for Israel. How can Israel trust in a God who just lost the war? Why not worship these gods of Babylon and these idols? Why not give in to the Babylonian definition of reality? And so Isaiah reminds them these idols are made by humans. They're made out of created materials showing that they are not real. They're silly superstition. And Yahweh is too great for these images. You can't take a tree or a rock and say this is God. What he's saying is no image can capture him. Now, there's two problems with idols. First of all, they reduce God. And second of all, the people that worship them become like that reduced God. A.W. Tozer said, no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. We tend to resemble our God. If your God is a harsh legalist, you'll be a harsh legalist. If your God is a soft sentimentalist that would never hurt a flea, that's the kind of heart you have. We tend to shape God in our image. And the temptation is to reduce God into an image that we are comfortable with, a God that won't ask too much of me, and we strip him of anything we don't like and reduce him. Now, no one likes to be reduced. I got reduced once. I made an appointment with a family, and the mother told the little preschooler, the minister's coming. And the preschooler was all excited and started telling people, Dennis the menace is coming. (laughs) The toughest thing in the church is to let God be God, be who he is. And we all, we all reduce him into our image. Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. 
and a whirlwind sweeps them away like shaft. The people are like grasshoppers. Princes and rulers are like shaft, blown away. They're here a moment, and then they're gone. They're just nothing compared to this God. No one can resist Him. No one can stand before Him. In the broad scope of history and what God is doing, these princes and rulers and kings are a blip on the screen. Do you not know? Have you not heard? You should know this. You're God's people. From God's vantage point, these people you fear are grasshoppers. Babylonian claims seemed as if they would endure forever. Babylonian was so powerful. No one thought Yahweh could counter Babylon, and Babylon fell in one generation. Where is Alexander the Great today? Where is Napoleon? How long did Hitler dominate the world scene? Ten years? Chapter 50, he asks, Was my arm too short to ransom you? Do I lack the strength to rescue you? Is God too weak to handle your exile? Isaiah 40 speaks to all of us. Isaiah wants to renew our vision of a God who, number one, who cares for us, he's on our side, and number two, he has the power to change any circumstance. To whom will you compare me, or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them missing. To whom will you compare him? The answer there would be no one. The stars were a major part of Babylonian worship, astrology. The stars were the heavenly forces and beings. And Isaiah is saying these gods in the sky that you fear were actually created by your God. No gods are above him. The main Babylonian gods were represented by the sun, moon, and the stars. Marduk was the sun god. And Isaiah asked, who created these? One of the games we uh, play with little children is so big. And stretch the hands way up so big. Now, when your spouse asks, how big do my hips look? You probably shouldn't say, so big. You know. <clears throat> we teach our children to say that because we want them to realize they're growing And we know that what they think of themselves matters. But a more important question that I want my kids to know, how big is your God? Not how big are you, how big is your God? This whole text is about the incomprehensible, incomparable greatness of God. The earth, dust on the scale. Nations, drop in the bucket. Less than nothing. How can you be less than nothing? People, grasshoppers. Rulers and princes, shaft. Are you starting to get a picture of who this God is? Now, I've said this before in sermons, but I love this phrase. It is easier for a gnat to drink the ocean than for you or I to comprehend the majesty of God. Easier for a gnat to drink the ocean. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Why do you complain, verse 27, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. See, the irony is God is so big and so majestic, so beyond us, that a lot of people don't see him. I mean, he's so big, they miss him. Like the nursery rhyme that says, Pussycat, pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to visit the queen. Pussycat, pussycat, what did you there? I frightened the little mouse under the chair. Cat goes into the presence of royalty, the queen, and chases mice. Do you not know? Have you not heard? 
Of course they knew. They were God's people. They were raised in Sunday school. Then you know that this God is above this captivity. And God is above your exile and any mess maybe you've made. God is beyond cancer and heart disease and even death. But it's still hard. I still feel like I'm exiled and I'm, I get tired. So he says in verse 29, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. Heard that one before? They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Exile would take a lot out of them, and they were tired, but those who hope and wait on the Lord will renew their strength. When we were children, we learned a mealtime prayer. God is great. God is good. Let us thank Him for our food. What could be simpler than those two foundational assertions about God? He is great. He is good. He is able. He cares. The great commission that Jesus gave carried the same two themes. Jesus tells His followers, All power is given to me, and I am with you always to the end. Do you not know? Have you not heard? He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. God, we are grateful that we worship you, a powerful and caring God. We are grateful that even in exile, sometimes even when we feel abandoned or we're tired, you are there. And we know you are still in control. We know you are still working. Grant us the strength and faith to trust you. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.
Modern worship songs. Number one, because I can relate to the first sentence. A thousand times I've failed. I mean, mine's more like a million, a couple million. But we've all been there, right? And, and much like Israel's exile, let's face it, a lot of it was their own fault for failing over and over again. God had called them to do something, and they continually messed up. They continually forsaken him. They continually chose other idols to worship. And much like Israel today, we have all been in exile, but we've been separated from God. And much like Isaiah had a message for the people of comfort, saying how big God is, Paul has a very similar statement about how big Jesus is. And I always look for a reason to read this passage because it's one of my favorites, so I'm going to read it Today, probably won't be the last time I read it up here, but from Colossians chapter 1. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies of your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you through Christ's physical body, through death, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you have heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. We've all been there. We've all been in exile. But through this supreme being of Christ, we've been restored through his death, burial, and resurrection. 
And that is why we come around this table. Let's pray. Father, you are so big. We often fail just to realize how big you are. We don't give you full credit. We build our own images much like they did in Israel. And we hold you to those. But God, you are so much bigger. And not only that, but we have messed up so much. And yet you have sent your firstborn, the firstborn among all creation, to give up his life for us. And for that, we are eternally grateful. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.